Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9. During this uh, month of September, we have been giving some thought to the ministry and asking the question, how, how are disciples made? How do people come to know the Lord and live for the Lord? And uh, I had already decided on this topic before I went to to uh, my master's degree programs that I'm taking, but a lot of the things that I've been reading and studying have been fueling my thinking and refining my thinking in great ways. And uh, one of the books that I was assigned to read is uh, called Evangelism That Works by a fellow named George Barna. Now, uh, George Barna may not be a name known to you, but he's well known in the Christian world because he he takes, he does a, uh, surveys, what's the word, polls, if you will, surveys of large sections of the United States. And oftentimes, if you read statistics anywhere or you hear statistics about the church in America and uh, how things are going, it's probably come from this fellow and his organization. And in his own words, to write this book, he spent two years of time and tens of thousands of dollars on research to come up with the material in this book. And uh, I was a little disconcerted that we were reading it right from the beginning because it was written in 1995. Now, uh, theoretically, evangelism that works has been working for 2,000 years, but when a guy says he's going to write something on the cutting edge, like one of the other books he wrote was called User-Friendly Churches. So, you know, he's right on the cutting edge of things. And I'm thinking the cutting edge of 1995 is not the same as 2009. Because I'm reading all the Christian literature, not all of it, but a lot of it. And I'm following these trends, even though we don't follow them too much. But I'm watching what goes on, and the trends are changing dramatically. And I'm thinking, why am I reading this book? And I'm kind of getting a little angry uh, at the author for some of the foolishness. And uh, um, let me read the chapter titles to you. First couple of chapters he talks about, he, he, he actually talks in one of these chapters about how the majority of Christians in America think that the gospel has already saturated the United States. And I'm thinking, does anybody here think that the gospel has saturated Ferndale? No, I don't think so. And I don't know any pastor anywhere who ever talked that way. I don't know who he's getting his information from. But it kind of goes on like that, and he's telling. And, you know, there's some good stuff in here, too, you know, a number of things that are, that are useful. And, and I'm reading it and reading it, and then I, see, I have to write a little report at the end. I have to summarize the content, and then I have to say the things that I'm going to take away and use in the ministry. Okay? And uh, so, you know, I'm already getting ready to write, but uh, I'm not that excited. But I get to chapter 10, and chapter 10 is called, Where's the Beef? And uh, he said, before I began writing this book, I was filled with anticipation. I was anxious to focus on the unknown, to be the first to share the exciting discovery of evangelistic success stories that could serve as a springboard to a new era of profound victories for Christ. I had done my homework spending nearly two years and tens of thousands of dollars on, on researching evangelism. I prayed that God would allow me to bless his people by communicating new paths that he has opened for us to travel to alert the evangelistic leaders of our nation to the waves of the future and to provide some impetus for pursuing those new directions with gusto. 
Now, many days and hundreds of pages later, I feel like my balloon of excitement has been deflated. Here we are at the end of this journey, and I want to shout, I wanted to shout, here it is, colleagues in Christ, the latest, most effective, the unexpected route to evangelistic impact as we enter the new millennium together. I truly wanted to be able to share new insight. But as we near the end of the journey, the bottom line is not what I expected. It is not, I bet you don't know about this strategy yet. This is what all the hot churches are doing. How could I have known that the real insight to emerge from this study would be as old as Solomon's wisdom? There is nothing new under the sun. So what are the new, quote-unquote, he says, models for evangelism? Seeker services? Today's seeker strategies are simply an updated version of Jesus' mountainside chat with the crowds or Paul's interactive encounters in the marketplace with the Gentiles. Socratic evangelism? Jesus initiated evangelism by dialogue. Paul mastered the art. New models? Nothing new under the sun. I had been snared by one of the most seductive but erroneous notions promoted in our culture. To be on the cutting edge, something has to be newer, bigger, flashier, more complex. Also erroneous is the belief that the future will be dominated by those people who are the most innovative. To be the best, they will have to be the most unusual, most creative, most energetic. The truth is there are no new models for evangelism because we do not need new models for evangelism. We only need to understand the theology, the heart, and the passion of Jesus Christ as exemplified for us in his ministry. We must be sensitive to people who are called to reach, true to the principles given to us in Scripture, and committed to reaching people with the love of Christ through personal commitment and persistence. And so I want to share with you today the answer to this question. How do people get saved? His research, and I could have trotted out a whole armload of books. All the research says one thing. People get saved through redemptive relationships. Now, I'm not talking about the part that God plays today particularly. I know that God has to call people to salvation. I know that God has to open their eyes. I know that they have to hear God's truth, and they have to believe and obey, and God has to make it real to them. I understand all of that. Frankly, when I ask this question, and I ask it to somebody this week who was well-versed in conservative theology, and they started giving me all those answers. And it's all true. But you know, there's one thing that if it is not present, all of that stuff won't do any good. And that one thing is this. Redemptive relationships conducted by people who already know the Lord. Well over 70% of the people who come to Christ and are surveyed by guys like this say, what influenced me for the Lord was this person right here or that person right there. And so the thing that I want to share with you today, I just want to talk about redemptive relationships. I want to talk about building relationships with unbelievers. See, I I know in the past I've talked to you about sharing the gospel. And I'm sure I've given you the impression that what you need to do is just go out and whack everybody over the head with the gospel of Christ. And sooner or later, 
Some of them are going to respond. And there's some truth to that. Because God does seem to have worked in some people's lives, and once in a while you come along and boom, they accept the Lord. I remember going and witnessing to a high school kid in my youth group. Um, I don't remember if he'd have been attending our church much, a little bit, but I didn't have much relationship with him, and I just went out and got my courage up and said, buddy, you need to get saved. And he went, okay. I'm like, yeah. That's the only time that's ever happened for me. Conversely, I could talk about a number of times when there was time after time after time and relationship relationship for me coming through the church, contacts through the church. But I want to go beyond that today. And I just want to challenge you in the area of redemptive relationships. I don't want you to go out of here thinking, I need to go out and beat people over the head with the Bible. I want you to go out of here today saying, I need to love somebody to Christ. First thing that we need to understand is this. Redemptive relationships won't happen unless we have a heart for people. And that's where we want to start in Romans chapter 9. This is the Apostle Paul talking about the Jewish people. If you don't know a lot about the Bible or the Apostle Paul, he was a Jewish man. He was a very dedicated Jewish We would call him an Old Testament believer to some extent until he encountered Christ and he became a Christian and became, you know, one of the greatest uh, missionary evangelists that ever has been. And right here in Romans 9, he turns his topic in the book of Romans to talk specifically about his own Jewish people. And he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. In other words, my physical tribe who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. He said, "I do you understand when he uses the word accursed in verse 3? Do you understand what he's saying? He said, I wish I could go to hell in their place. Boy, just, just think on that for a while. I wish I could take their place. Turn over to chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire and my prayer. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul's heart was broken for his tribe. He was overcome with sadness to think that God's chosen people, the Jewish people who had God's word, what we call the Old Testament now, that spoke so clearly of Christ and pointed them to Christ by everything in that Old Testament worship system, and yet they're walking away from God, and he's just going, oh my goodness, that breaks my 
heart. He saw their future in hell. He saw their future in hell and he said, I wish I could take that and they could all be saved. He saw their future in hell and it broke his heart. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus had the same broken heart for the same tribe. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. This is Jesus after some months of ministry stopping and looking around. And it broke his heart because he saw that, you know, sheep have to be led. And he said, it's like there's no shepherd and they're all just walking about in the darkness. One night we came home in Tukwila to see a whole bunch of police cars on the street in front of our house. Um, our house was kind of on a, a, a bit of a bluff like this and the street was down here and uh, certainly the police drove up our street quite a bit, uh, not to our house thankfully, but there's a whole bunch of cops there so I got out and said, hey guys, what's going on? And across the street from our house, there was a a wooded area with blackberry bramble, and there had been a clearing kind of made in there. And a fella, a 20-year-old fella, had gone back in there and sat down and took his own life. (laughs) I mean, if you stood back like this and looked at the clearing, directly across it said, South Center Community Baptist Church. Boy, that breaks your heart, doesn't it? Here's a 20-year-old guy. He was hooked on drugs. He'd gotten out of treatment, I believe, recently. Can't kick it. Just kind of drowning in it. Goes out there, has a cigarette, has a chew, kills himself. Wow. The hopelessness in the world is more pervasive than you would know looking at them. Jesus could see. He could see exactly what was going on, see them wandering about, and it broke his heart. I have an acquaintance right here in town that's been diagnosed with a very, very serious illness, possibly life-threatening, and a mutual friend. I I know this person, but somebody else said, hey, would you like me to to tell Dave that that you'd like some help? And they said, yeah. I went and visited and... And sure enough, boy, they're facing possibly a life-ending situation. I just said, hey, here's what the Lord can do. Here's how he can help you sleep at night. Here's how he can help you get ready for whatever comes and shared the gospel with them. And, you know, they didn't say not now, but it was clear it was not now. Oh, really? Really, you're going you're gonna to roll the dice of this life and hope to survive? And not get ready for eternity? Really? Oh. Well, in light of my sermon, I'm not done with them. <laughs> How you doing this week? How you doing this week? Breaks my heart. But my heart isn't broken up enough or often enough. Jesus put it this way later, almost to the end of his ministry. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and the stones, those who, 
and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Let me translate that last phrase. You're on your own, and it's not going to be pretty. Now, do you know what literally happened to Jerusalem about 35 years later? The Romans came. The Romans got tired of the uprisings that constantly were going on with the Jewish people, and they squashed the city flat like a bug. They literally burned it. You know, you can burn stone buildings. You build a fire inside of a stone building like they have over there, and the stones turn to dust. It all goes to mush and it all falls away. The Romans came and raised it to the ground and all the Jewish folks had to flee. Literally, their house was left to them desolate. For us, most of the time, it is a more figurative, although physically involved kind of desolation. What do you see when you look at people who don't know the Lord? Ah. Oh. We've got to ask God to help us see better. We've got to ask God to give us a heart, a heart for them. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, as we continue to think about what does it mean to have a redemptive relationship. second thing that we need to understand about redemptive relationships is this. Redemptive relationships require time. Acts 18, the Apostle Paul going out about ministering. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. The Apostle Paul had a skill, had a trade. He was a tent maker. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks... When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. I believe that when us biblical fundamentalists read this story and we think about sharing the gospel, we tend to focus on the phrase that says, he was reasoning in the synagogue, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And we focus in there and we say, yeah, the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul took his Torah scroll and he went down to the synagogue and he unrolled that dude and he said, look, Jesus is the Christ. And he did that. Interestingly, it says he reasoned with them. 
That's another whole sermon, but he didn't beat them over the head with that Torah scroll. He showed them all of the biblical answers, why these things had to be true. But here's what I'd like to challenge you to focus on today. Every Sabbath. The phrase that says every Sabbath, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And then we go down to verse 8. And the ruler of the synagogue believed this is another synagogue. And the apostle Paul was carrying on ministry, ministry, ministry over time. Turn to Acts 19 and verse 8. I guess I've got it right here for you too. And he went into the synagogue in Ephesus. I've added that. That's not in the text. And he spoke boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way or Christianity before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. That's a philosophical school. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So we have some time frames made reference to, three months, two years. We have some indefinite time periods. When you think of building a relationship that will bring somebody to Christ, what time period do you think of? Well, boom, I'm going to, give them the, I'm going to get in there, and as soon as I can, I'm going to give them the gospel, and if they don't receive it, then I'm going to go on to somebody else. I want to challenge you that bringing people to faith in Christ is a time-consuming process that needs to include building relationships and loving them to the Lord. You know, we used to talk about the importance for parents of spending quality time with their children. That's pretty much gone by the wayside, that concept now. Because there was a presumption that quantity time was not available, and what really mattered was the quality of the time we did spend, as though we can pack an hour into 10 minutes if we really work at it, you know? No one, no one talks that way anymore because we know that there's no quality time without quantity time. Relationships only grow as time is spent together. Um, this last week, my wife and I were kind of going in different directions most of the week. Um, do you think you could have a good marriage by saying, now, dear, we're going to spend 10 minutes together right there, but they're going to be quality minutes. <laughs> yeah, that'd probably work. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't work with kids. It doesn't work with wives. And it doesn't work with unbelievers. There's got to be quality time which is quantity time. Helping people become disciples doesn't happen quickly. We're in such a hurry these days that the microwave oven doesn't cook quickly enough for us anymore. You ever push the button and think, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> how, many of you, how many of you remember defrosting things in the water in the sink? Yeah, yeah. You want to have a hurry-up moment, you just try that sometime. <laughs> it used to take weeks to send a letter to Ghana or Japan or Brazil, and now it takes minutes for the email to go and come back when the phone system is working. 
And that isn't quick enough. We expect to share the gospel or to bring somebody to a special church service or to take them a gospel book and whammo, they become devoted followers of Christ. I'm telling you today, it's not going to happen. If you didn't know that, it's not going to happen. Redemptive relationships require time. And they also require soul. I understand the word soul and heart are kind of similar, but here's what I mean. We've got to invest ourselves through activity with people. Um, we don't have an exact record of what Paul did at Ephesus. We, we see that he was there and that he ministered to those people, and we know that a great church was started. But I think what he did there was probably the same thing he did everywhere. And 1 Thessalonians gives us that snapshot into the way he conducted himself And it's very instructive for us as we would think about connecting with other unbelievers. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Do you understand that the preaching of the gospel of God, the sharing of God's truth, went on in this environment? The Apostle Paul gave his life to these people. Hey, I struggled as I prepared this sermon this week because I need it at least as much as you do if not more. It's tough to carve out time to just spend with people, to love them with a prayer that maybe God will be honored to use it for them to come to faith in Christ. I'm afraid Christianity has become infected with our business ethic in the U.S., which is this, time is money. And if this isn't working out, I'm moving on to that. And I think the truth that we see in God's word and certainly the truth that we see in the world around us and that's been going on as long as I've been a pastor is that time is an important essence and investment in people. Why is time and soul so important? It seems to me that it's the same as buying a car. Now, I bought a fine, fine Dodge automobile, and I pray to God they keep making them because I want to buy another one when this one wears out someday. (laughs) But I bought it from my friend that I trust. Now, I visited a lot of car dealerships, and uh, at, 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 at least one of them, the guy was, what would I say he was? He was just about verbally insulting me to try to manipulate me to go along his path of, of working this deal. And, and I was just basically saying, just tell me what you want for the car, buddy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, even if you tell me, I can guarantee you I will not buy the car from you. And then when he told me the price he was asking, I knew that he was strictly trying to jerk me around because I've been doing a lot of research and I knew that that price was way off the charts. Now, this guy is self-serving. And this guy is trying to manipulate me for his own good. 
I go to my friend that I've known since fifth grade, who I know is a godly man, not just that he says he's a Christian. I know he's a godly man. And I say, hey, brother, I'm looking for a car. And, and boom, he's straight up open. And he goes, here's what I'm going to charge you. Whatever price we get it for, it's going to cost. This, this is my fee. Straight up, boom. And he found me a car at the best price possible. And it was a pleasure doing business with him. But I trusted him because he was my friend who I really know, not just an acquaintance. Did it ever occur to you that you're asking people to trust you with their eternal life? And that maybe they don't respond to you, not because they don't like you, or they don't come to our church, not because they know something bad about it, but more so they're going, can I really trust you? I don't know what the most significant purchase or decision you've made in recent days, uh, perhaps going to a doctor, you know, uh, you kind of want, somehow, I know, I know it's hard to do, but somehow you want to, to think that your doctor is really trustworthy and intelligent and knows what he's talking about and all that stuff. And you don't want to think that he's the guy who graduated last in his class at medical school. You know what they call those guys? Doctor. You're talking about people's eternal soul. Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they be slow to believe you? You see, us who know the Lord and we know His trustworthiness and we know that this is the very Word of God, we say, "Look, it's the Word of God," and we're thinking, "Why don't you believe it?" It's because they don't believe us yet. Yet. And that's where this whole idea of a redemptive relationship is part of God's plan. You see, if God has ordained the end, which is the salvation of some people, he has also ordained the means. And the means is not only the proclamation of truth, but the proclamation of truth through people who have demonstrated care. Jesus said, this is why they will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How do they know if we love one another? Well, I guess they have to hang around here for a while. Guess they have to read the paper and see if our names are in it as a church, which is usually going to be a bad thing, you know. We've got to demonstrate to them that, that not only are we trustworthy, but, but that God is trustworthy. You see, here's the, here's the thing. I can't push the truth into the soul of an unbeliever, but I can persist in loving them in word and deed and prayer until they know that I genuinely care for them. Frankly, I think it's going to be easier for you to lead people than the Lord than me. You know why? Because I get paid to do it. I'm the, I'm the car salesman. How you doing, brother? Would you like to know Jesus? <laughs> A little notch on my belt. Hey, that's what happens. That's why it makes me happy when people say, you don't act like a pastor. Or when they find out I'm a pastor and they're going, really? I I think that's good most of the time. (laughs) No comments from you. 
It's tough. It's tough for any of us to really demonstrate the, the Lord. And, see, and that's what the Apostle Paul did too. When the Apostle Paul talked to people, he said, look, here's the way my life used to be, and here's the way my life is now. Now here's something unique that, the, that Paul had going for him that we don't always have. The Apostle Paul was kind of a public figure. It would be like, you know, if you know, Matt Hasselbeck's already a Christian, but if he was some wicked sinner and then he got saved and his life really changed, when he went to witness to somebody, he'd say, well, I used to be this way and I'm this way now. They could read the paper and see if it's true. And that's the way Paul was. They, they, I mean, his reputation preceded him. The guy that used to arrest Christians is now pushing Jesus. For us, there has to be an exposure over time so people can see, are, are you genuine? Are you real? How do you act when nobody's looking, per se? How do we invest our lives in someone to help them know Christ? Well, it starts with prayer. And so I would ask you today, who do you know that doesn't know Christ that you are praying for regularly? I mean, if you have a heart, if, if you look around and it breaks your heart when you see things, then my question is, are they on your prayer list? That's the starting point. Because God does have to open their eyes. And God does have to help them see that you are genuine and so on. So it starts with prayer. And, and not only, and, and think about this, not only praying for them to believe, but much more so praying for opportunities to love them. You see, we think, of, we think, God, please give me an opportunity to share the gospel truth today. And that's great. And I'm not, I'm not against that. I'm praying that myself. But I think we also have to be praying, God, give me a chance to love some unbeliever today, to do something kind for somebody today. And if we walk through our life thinking, where's an unbeliever that I could love? Might we live differently? Rather than thinking, I have an agenda, I'm doing things, I'm important, I'm busy. And praying for opportunities to demonstrate the love of Christ. And praying for natural openings to share the truth and just to bring the subject up and start the conversation. One of the things that that a number of folks pointed out, including this fellow here, is the idea that people aren't so interested in us banging the truth on them, even when they ask for it. They really respond better to a conversation about the truth. And so to pray for those opportunities. And it goes on from praying then to say, I'm going to get acquainted, I'm going to give help, I'm going to build relationship, and I'm going to speak the truth. There's one more thing that redemptive relationships need, and that is they require initiative. Do you have Acts 18 open still? If you look at verse 2, the text says this, Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, and then he found his wife, you know, him and his wife Priscilla. And then he found the synagogue and so on. Let me ask you a question. Do you think when the Apostle Paul went about his work, he was just stumbling down the road first thing in the morning on his way to Starbucks and went, Oh, there's a synagogue here. What do you know? 
I think maybe I'll stop in and talk to them about the Lord. Or do you think when he came into town, he was going, now the first thing I've got to do is find the synagogue. And then when I get there, I'm going to find some Jewish people that are already worshiping God, and I've got to, to connect with some of those people. And he apparently connected with Aquila and Priscilla, and they said, hey, come stay with us. You don't have a place to stay. And back in that day, that was much more common than now because they didn't have motels and that sort of thing. But he, was, he exerted initiative. He exerted initiative. He didn't just sit around with his hands under his legs going, oh boy, I wish there was somebody I could love. He went out and looked for him. Let me ask you a question. Stick my neck out here. Do you think that I love my grandson Malachi? Why do you think that? Tell me something. Tell me. Tell me one thing that tells you that that might be true. What? He's my child's child. In other words, I, I have a responsibility to love him. Okay, that's okay. I bring him up. I'm talking about him right now, aren't I? Yeah. My face. Okay. Okay. Action. Okay. Yes. He's cute. Yeah. <laughs> He's easy to love, isn't he? Yeah. I want you to think about something real seriously now. Who initiated our love relationship? I did. Okay. He wakes up with them every day. But even with them, even with parents, would you think about this for a minute? Who initiates a love relationship, the baby or the parents? parents it's the parents going oh goo, 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 you're so beautiful oh, blah, 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 blah. you know come on talk to me come on come on what can i do for you how can i help you ah. and pretty soon the kid goes hey this is pretty cool <laughs> initiative initiative in relationship are you waiting for some unbeliever to come along and say would you please love me to the lord now, occasionally that happens. Occasionally people do stumble into church and they're going, man, I, I want to know the Lord. Great, we can, we can do that. But we can do more than that. <laughs> because we need to be saying, God, help me to reach out and build relationships with people. I, I don't expect Malachi to, to initiate and lead the relationship with me. It's up to me. And it's up to you to initiate relationships with unbelievers. <sighs> if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, here's what I'm saying to you. We want to initiate a relationship with you. We don't just want you to believe. We want to love you and help you understand who God is and how he can affect not only eternity but today and to the rest who know the Lord. Will you start praying? Will you make a short list of folks, five folks, ten folks, and say, God, I'm going to pray for those people, and I'm going to say, show me how to love them, and let me someday see them love you. Heavenly Father,
It's so much easier for us to love ourselves and to love our own families and to love this church family than it is to, to reach out and build a relationship with the people you've put around us who need to know you. Father, help us. Help us. Help this church to be known as a place that loves unbelievers. Help this church to be known as a place where where folks become disciples and come to know the, the wonderful life that you have for them. Father, do your work in our hearts today. I pray in Christ's name, amen.